0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Uh, My name is Christopher Coker. I am director of LSE Ideas, the foreign policy think tank of the London School of Economics. And uh, I'm happy to welcome you to the third in a series of of lectures uh, Strategy New Voices, identifying uh, new thinkers. Uh, meeting the challenges of strategizing in the 21st century. Uh, we're very happy today uh, to welcome uh, marie Noël Nukolo, uh, who will be talking about the problems and challenges of urbanization in Africa. And I would like to add that this event is being co-hosted uh, today with the Thiraj Laodji Institute uh, for Africa, which is also based at the LSE. Uh, marie Noël uh, has been working with the Brenthurst Foundation, Uh, in South Africa uh, on a project called The Future of African Cities. Uh, She joined the foundation in 2019. Uh, She's had extensive uh, field work, uh, undertaken extensive field work in great many African countries such as Kenya and Zambia, uh, Ghana uh, and uh, Nigeria. And I'm glad to say she's also an alumna of the London School of Economics. Uh, She will be speaking for about uh, 40 minutes or so. And then as a standard format, I will be asking uh, questions following up some of the points that you made for about 15 minutes afterwards. And then I will open it up to Q&A. So as soon as you have questions that come into your mind, please uh, send them uh, to us. And I will try to ensure that as many of those questions can be dealt with before we finally have to end. We will have, have a podcast of this event and the hashtag is LSE New Voices. So, uh, Mary Noel, um, please, over to you. We look forward to what you have to say.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Christopher. Um, And to uh, Hugh, Dave, uh, the rest of LSE Ideas and Events team, uh, thank you so much um, for honoring me with this invitation as part of the LSE New Voices Lecture Series. Um, It's really an honor to be here and to the FERS Large Institute. Um, Thank you for co-supporting this as well. You were a core feature of my time at the LSE through the Program for African Leadership. So um, it's nice to continue that relationship even in this regard. Um, So I'm just going to get started um, by sharing my slides just now. Awesome. Um, Christopher, can you see uh, my slides from your side?
0: Yes, I can. Thanks. Perfect. All right.
1: Uh, So hi and good evening uh, to everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for giving up a portion of your Wednesday evening um, to be here. Uh, I promise not to take too much of your time. Uh, So this evening, I really just want to share um, with you all um, one big idea. Um, And this idea is that to create and manage um, thriving cities, right? um, you need more than just the hard physical infrastructure. In other words, you need the software of politics, of governance, of economic growth and security uh, to complement the hardware that is transportation, housing, electricity, um, waste management. Um, And so in the next few slides, I will share very briefly um, research on how some African cities are tackling urbanization um, and what the learnings from them um, offer, how we think about um, how we do strategy in our cities and even um, our countries at large. So building on the foundation's work with governments at their national, subnational, and local level, and based on the recognition that cities are vital to economic growth um, and a better quality of life for people, the Brentis Foundation in 2015 launched the Future of African Cities Research and Media Project, Um, The aim of this project was twofold. Um, The first was to identify the policy options and the path forward for the demographic spike uh, that Africa will experience over the next generation, um, especially in its cities. And so over three years, the foundation conducted in-depth research with over 500 qualitative interviews and uh, polling data for 2,500 respondents. Um, and although we drew from experiences of those of cities in places like Asia and Latin America, this research uh, focused primarily on six African countries. We chose the rapidly growing Lagos um, in Nigeria. Um, we chose Hargeisa, the capital of pastoral Somaliland. Um, in South Africa, uh, we chose the coastal cities of Cape Town and Buffalo City One of them an international travel destination, and the other a city of almost and not quite. Um, And in Morocco, we chose the sort of sister cities of Rabat and Saleh, um, whose trajectory has been shaped by a long and prickly history, if I can call it that. And then finally, we chose uh, Mombasa, um, which is sort of Kenya's key trading port um, and the gateway to the East African community. Now, when we ask why these cities, um, there was a deliberate choice to look beyond Africa's largest or even fastest growing cities, um, to some of those that may not necessarily make the list of top 10, um, but still whose trajectories would help to map the breadth of urban development um, across the continent. Now, although you know investigating like very different cities in very different regions really and with remarkably different lessons, they all had a lot in common. Um, and some of the things they had in common was you know, dealing with rapid urbanization, dealing with high cost of living, um, dealing with public transportation challenges, um, dealing with housing challenges, as well as investment challenges. And so this is sort of what we based um, our work on. Now, our own attempt at a theoretical framework um, for looking at cities and uh, urban development used the buckets of hardware and software. Um, in each of these cities, we focused on the components of urbanization, including governance, economic growth, um, and security, which we identified as software, um, as well as, you know, electricity, housing, transportation, um, which we called hardware. And the initial thesis for this research was this idea that, you know, there are a set of essential blocks um, to create a thriving African city. And the end results of the research, right, would show which of those blocks to prioritize in order to translate um, the sites of despair of many African um, urban milieus into Pose of prosperity, and in as short a time as possible, considering sort of the demographic change that we are basically looking at. Um, The the findings, however, were a little different um, and for a good reason. So, well, as it turns out, uh, success is not preordained, um, not in, in any of these cities, not in anywhere, really. Um, and then perhaps classic, you know, LSE International Development Department fashion. Um, it depends, um, and in this case, it really does. Um, from the research, four major sort of factors stand out as being of primary import, um, importance. As we looked at all of these cities, the first um, and the most essential, perhaps, is that you know politics and governance have to be aligned and right. And getting the politics right means creating an environment that is supportive of citizens. Um, and investors alike, right? One that gains their trust um, and instills confidence um, that you know, progress against the challenges that they are facing can and is, and is being made. Um, and it's really about an active sort of message and that is backed up by s- uh, substantive actions and not just rhetoric. Um, the second point really is um, that creating an enabling environment for growth is essential. Right. Africa has a large young population um, who properly enabled and supported um, have the potential to drive significant um, change. Um, much also uh, needs to be done to ensure that the environments that are created right um, can be sustained. Um, as well as sort of lead to multiply effects in directions that are beneficial to these cities, no matter you know, sort of what dimension we're working at. Um, and even in the context of creating an enabling environment, security is also of critical importance for a city to develop and thrive Because in a climate of violence and insecurity, whether that's real or perceived. Um, it's hard to make a case for investment, domestic or foreign, um, and insecurity also has been a negative impact on the quality of life for inhabitants, um, among other things. And The third point is that improvements to the planning and delivery of infrastructure and services is necessary, right? It's essential to have a realistic, clear, long-term view of how the city needs to develop and then to put in place the regulations to support the delivery of plans, not, this, not just to have, you know, a plan that we're looking at that we're expecting to work today or tomorrow, but don't actually sort of narrow down into what that actually looks like. What does that mean for what this city is meant to look like in the next you know X amount of years? Um, and for instance, uh, the lesson from um, Prutiba, the birthplace of the bus rapid uh, transport system in Colombia um, and even in other places, right, is that public transport is cost effective um, with population density. And as such, in a place where regulation um, limits building heights, for instance, um, that's density. Um, you know the consequences for a public transport system like that um, will be dire. And I think most cities, um, quite a number of cities, uh, even like Accra, like Lagos, who have tried this BRT system, uh, may have learned that the hard way. Um, so most cities as well, it turns out, right, have, they, they possess plans of varying detail um, and ambition, um, but they usually lack sort of the matching regulations and the funding and the institutional resources to make delivery possible. Um, And the last point, that sort of last thread that emerged from the research of these cities is that, you know, the role of tech and the smart use of data cannot be understated. Um, Being able to harness uh, new technology and innovation um, offers the prospects of some developmental shortcuts, um, including, for instance, um, smoother and faster um, delivery of services. Um, and even as we think about homegrown approaches to the challenges that we face in cities right we will need to rely on accurate data for planning and troubleshooting Um, in most cities in which um, a lot of this work for the project was done um, the lack of accurate data um, for city planning was a significant issue and it's not that it didn't exist because we are quite convinced that a lot of the useful data did exist or could be acquired relatively easily. It's just that the systems for capturing them and the way that is most beneficial um, didn't exist um, at that point or haven't been fully developed, I should say. So briefly, let me share with you a few highlights from um, some of our case studies um, from the City's project. So I'm not sure if anybody can identify this even from the first image, but notorious for good and bad reasons is Lagos, Nigeria, uh, one of the continent's rapidly urbanizing cities. Um, Between 1970 and 2019, the population of Lagos increased from 1.4 million to 21 million people. And by 2100, um, Lagos is predicted to reach about 88 million people, making it the world's largest city. Um, Lagos rapid growth has played incredible strain on its already faltering infrastructure, especially in the areas of housing, transportation, and electricity. Um, A low 45% of the population has access to the power grid. um, And as a result, about 80% of the population rely on diesel generators, 80% of people in Lagos. Um, Public transportation is also uh, poorly regulated. uh, It's poorly organized. Um, adding to the woes of movement in the city, right. Lagosians, we found out, you know, um, that spend an average of about four hours each day in traffic. Now, if you do the math on that in a year, we're talking about billions of hours lost in traffic congestion, right. So fixing these legacy problems uh, will not be easy in a place like Lagos, um, and even preparing for its future growth magnifies these challenges. Even more. But one of the key areas where you see the city sort of flailing performance is in housing. Um, There is a shortage of at least two to five million housing units, um, with more gate rates reaching even as high as 38%, um, if not more. Um, Nigeria, as a whole, actually suffers from a massive housing deficit, uh, currently estimated at some 17 million units, but Lagos, the shortfall is between two to five million. Uh, with about 70 percent of Lagosians living informally without access to basic services. Um, this problem is also compounded by an estimated 3,000 migrants um, who move into the city each day. Um, why would they do that? Well, it's the hope of better economic prospects, right? Despite the overcrowded conditions that exist, people would rather take their chances. Um, and the provision of housing in Lagos is dominated by the private sector, with public provision at about twenty percent. Um, and thus, property prices mirror the city's inequality, um, ranging from about four thousand dollars per meter squared um, on the richer sort of you know places called eco, a uh, place called the Eco Atlantic Estate, uh, to monthly rentals of some eight dollars. So between four thousand um, to eight dollars in an informal settlement. Um, even the Lagos Housing Ministry um, has not quite been able to provide a public solution to the housing shortage. Um, between 1979 and 2017, um, only an estimated 26, 27, 27,000 housing units were constructed by the ministry. Um, even then, some of these new um, government sort of units were priced well out of the average low-income families reach, um, in the past, they range from about $3,000 to about $35,000 with a sort of minimum bond repayment of over $140 per month on a 20-year loan. So it appears even that, you know, the state-driven housing solutions crowd out many devotions. Um, In the absence of sort of housing markets that caters to their needs, most negotiations are left to build housing um, on their own. For low-income residents, this often mean informal and unsafe building practices in areas where secure tenure is unheard of. And for wealthier, uh, for wealthier residents, The self-build model um, process is more formal and relies on houses being built over years as both finances and permits uh, trickle in whenever they do. Um, The state obviously has acknowledged this problem. However, the current policies um, do very little to address the backlog as projects often phase out with political leadership. Um, One governor's pet project is sort of not the same um, for the other. Now, the problem of suitable housing is one that appears a bit too complex for um, the government to solve alone. Um, it needs, as a matter of urgency, to develop the means to deal with its current housing backlog, um, as well as to prepare for future growth. And this will require, really, um, the state committing to removing sort of bureaucratic and extortionist hurdles, Um, to enable private sector finance and participation, um, and maybe stop trying to build itself, um, as well as generally getting out of the way. Um, But in Lagos, one will find that, you know, underlying a lot of um, the city's problems is a complex and corrosive political economy, um, which is made up of, of this cocktail of weak governance and widespread corruption. Um, A time-consuming legal system as well, an anemic economic growth that is sort of highly vulnerable um, to the vagaries of oil prices. Um, And so the narrative across the continent, however, is not one-dimensional. It's not just the same in Lagos as it is in every other city. There are differences that exist. Four hours of flying time to the north of Lagos will drop you in Rabat, the capital of Morocco. Um, At independence in 1956, Morocco's population was 10.5 million. Uh, 60 years later, it has more than tripled to 34.8 million. Um, Urbanization has been similarly rapid. At independence, it was about 29% of the population. Um, And now it's close to 60% um, of the population. With a young and sometimes aggressive population, um, Morocco has had to work extremely hard um, to create the opportunities needed for social um, stability. Um, and that's they did. So when the movie director um, Ridley Scott um, was looking for a location for his 2001 Hollywood blockbuster The Black Hawk Down, which many of you may have seen, um, it's a story that depicts the 1993 US mission to capture a Somali warlord um, that disastrously, I mean it went completely wrong, Um, the original site of the event Mogadishu um, was deemed to be far too dangerous Instead, they shot the film in Next Best Alternative, and that was in Morocco, um, with Saleh, one of its city's um, districts being transformed into the Somali capital. Um, In the 17th century, Rabat Medina um, became sort of Mogadishu's famous Bakara market. Today, however, they would have to go somewhere else. Um, And this was not by magic, right? So the sister cities of uh, Rabat and Saleh um, had sort of a long history of tensions that were exacerbated by colonial development policies um, that saw the ascension of Rabat to Morocco's capital and the active, uh, active or neglect of Saleh, um, long known as the rebel city for its citizens' um, defiance of external rule. Um, by the late uh, sort of 90s, um, Saleh on the north side of the Bouregreg River um, from the capital Rabat was in relative disrepair and its conditions were more akin to Mogadishu than Rabat um, with large slants and high unemployment, uh, poor sanitation and bad water supply, I mean, endless. Um, and in only two decades, less than a generation, um, efforts have been made to change the power dynamics and bring the cities closer together through means such as integrated service delivery. Um, So the development of these twin cities has largely been propelled by um, housing and transport projects um, that, you know, were not without their flaws, but, however, have enabled greater access to decent amenities um, and better economic opportunities for low-income residents. And Quite importantly, Rabat and Sally did something that a lot of African countries could learn or haven't learned how to do quite well, and which is to develop a sort of clever concessionary system um, that um, integrates the private sector to deliver municipal services such as, you know, refuse collection, water supply and electricity amongst others. So looking a little bit at housing as well in Morocco, um, that really the development of uh, the sister cities of Rabat and Saleh provides a dynamic case study of what it means to actively tackle the challenges of urbanization and rapid population growth in the 21st century. Um, in the aftermath of 9-11 attacks, uh, Morocco's you know, found itself in a growing sort of domestic Islamist and um, terrorist challenge. Um, in addition to the standard developmental concerns of reducing poverty and inequality, um, and preventing, uh, preventing the, spread, the spread of terrorism became a key policy issue. Um, the 2003 Casablanca bombings, um, the deadliest attack in the kingdom's history, um, followed by you know, the Arab Spring in 2010, really raised insecurity to a level of national imperative. Um, and basically forced the hand of the king to examine um, its root causes, the results of which highlighted the vulnerabilities of low-income Moroccans um, living in bidon views, those are slums, um, to radicalism. So these attacks sort of placed human development at the center of Morocco's fight against terrorism um, and gave rise to wide-reaching policies that made space for many of the country's urban innovations over the last 16, 17 years, including the removal of slums. So, Morocco's slum um, removal initiative, um, Programme National, D'Action um, Daxua fabric Fabrique, uh, launched in 2001. Um, and the subsequent Ville and Pedro view program, BSB, um, translated as Cities Without Slums, um, launched in 2004. Um, and this was combined with an aggressive sort of industrialization and job creation strategy. Um, and these have dramatically um, changed and still are changing the face of uh, cities like Rabat and Saleh and others across the country. Now, the Cities Without Slams project is very interesting because it was an ambitious plan to rid Moroccan cities of squatter slums or, or settlements um, by 2010 And it was obviously supported not just by government, but also with external help from people like the World Bank, the UN Habitat, um, and I think the French Development Agency. So at its launch, it estimated about 30% of its current housing structures were in sufficient condition to qualify for in situ upgrading. Um, But the remaining 70% would require relocations to new plots. And initial provisions were made through sort of partnerships and collaborations with organizations mentioned before uh, to resettle some 150,000 families over five years. So, in this process, very low income residents, about 10% of that population, uh, were provided with completely free housing, uh, while the remaining 90% received housing units at a subsidized rate. Um, paid directly um, or through a mortgage. And in six years, the VSB program um, had been able to clear about 32 cities, decreasing the slum population from 8.2% um, of total urban population in 2004 to 3.9%. Uh, this resulted in the project's extension because it was working. Uh, by 2008, about 58 of the 83 cities had been declared slum-free, and the project still lives on. Now, Morocco did something very interesting with this, as previously alluded to, and which is they utilized the power of PDPs, um, private, you know, public-private partnerships, uh, to increase the level of housing stock available to low-income residents. Um, and this has been lauded internationally, right, for its ability to deliver decent quality housing to citizens who would otherwise have been excluded. Um, however, the issues around involuntary relocations um, also point to the dangers of failing to get the social factors um, and nuances of mass housing rights. And that is also a lesson for other countries uh, dealing with a challenge like this to learn. So today, while Rabat and its sister city of Saleh may um, just be four you know, hours flying time from Lagos, they do feel like a world apart. And Morocco's success so far is a key demonstration of how to get things done when the software of political will, economic growth, leadership, and security complements the hardware issues like housing as we've just spoken about. Um, of course, their combination of a monarchy and long run political horizon um, has provided the ever elusive political will in other African countries and cities um, in ensuring a tight focus on delivery. Um, and the clouds necessary to obtain resources and overcome obstacles. Nevertheless, the feats that they had to deal with was humongous, and their ability to include, you know, economic growth and this idea of creating jobs for its population, as well as dealing with a backlog of challenges, was extremely unique, and extremely insightful um, for other African countries. Now, outside of the continent, right? There are many good. Um, in bad cases um, a city of sight and for good reason is singapore um the pace if you look at singapore the pace and scale of um, their transition from you know urban glam to a global city so is unparalleled um despite the common narrative, um, of critics that, you know, sort of this action was down to authoritarianism. Um, the ability to get things done has relied principally on the government's performance record um, and commitments to popular welfare. Success has also depended to not on a few big or iconic infrastructure projects, um, as you see in quite a number of African um, cities and countries, um, or even the provision of necessary funding, um, housing and land, even though all these things were a necessary aspects, but fundamentally on ensuring a complete cycle of economic growth, of governance, and of job creation um, within an overarching can-do political framework. So overall, Singapore's continuous transformation and development really speaks to the importance of matching deeds um, with words and of careful planning. It illustrates the necessity of rooting the actions um, that governments carry out, whether the city, regional, or national level, in the population's um, principal needs. Now, why the conversation, right, around urbanization in African cities? And I think that's an important question to ask today um, in this presentation. Um, We know that by 2030, the majority of Africans uh, will live in cities. Already in 2019, about 500 million people lived in African cities. By 2050, however, 1.3 billion people will live in African cities. If anyone knows what the population of say Africa, the continent or Africa was in 2020, it's that number. So basically the number of people in African cities by 2050 will be the same as the entire continent's population in 2020. The scale of the challenge is enormous. Um, Lagos, for instance, will be uh, the globe's largest metropolis with a population of about 88 uh, million, um, followed by Kinshasa and Dar es Salaam. Um, with about 83 million and 73 million um, thereabouts. Um, And why is that important? Well, cities ought to be places of rapid development and growth um, because of this agglomeration effect, Right, it's much less expensive to build and maintain infrastructure for a dense neighborhood. And when we take it to a fact that cities are predicted to account for about 80% of global economic growth in the future, um, a function of you know, efficiencies and economies of scale of people and infrastructure, we need to consider what our cities look like, what role can they play in this growth um, or like the, um, in this growth, and how can we ensure that we don't exactly miss out um, again. Um, and so how, well if we think about African cities, um, for instance, and how you know many of our cities have developed organically, Um, with very limited planning um, and intervention and thus missing out on many of the associated benefits of agglomeration because the cities aren't designed for scale and as one consequence these environments have become inefficient and expensive places to live um, also buckling under services and infrastructure backlogs and have become uh, frankly speaking unattractive to investors. Um, it's that necessary that you know, governments find more effective ways of managing uh, the growth of urban populations? And without the right tools and plans, um, this great swell of people could prove a demographic disaster. Um, and instead of being poles of prosperity, um, where you know, cities are thriving, populations are thriving, um, African cities could become sites of despair um, and characterized by anarchy. Uh, however, properly managed Africa's population increase offers a unique development opportunity. Now, whether or not we become one or the other um, is dependent on how we choose to tackle our rapid urbanization challenges. Um, but as I mentioned before, you know, success or failure is not preordained. Now, when we look at how uh, sort of cities are governed under more um, at the moment, The old way isn't working, right? So this old idea of national governments setting the priorities and that filtering down through regional governments and then to local governments and almost like local governments essentially become like vehicles of delivery. Um, of policy, um, rather than active participants in setting what the vision should be. Um, This model, um, as we've come to see through the research within these six cities as well as looking at cities um, from Singapore through to Chile is that it's not working anymore and we need to figure out a new approach to doing things. And this new approach really is not too far-fetched, right? it almost is inverting this around where local government, when it comes to city planning, managing urbanization and rapid population. Um, growth um in the cities is more actively involved in setting what the priorities are and what the priorities should be and also um get to participate in you know uh generating revenue as well as spending revenue rather than being allocated on some arbitrary figure um, from national government and that cities who are closer to the people um they uh are better able to sort of text the issues and how to handle handle them, um, these can kind of funnel through national sort of policies um, around cities and how we do um, development um, at large. Now if we go back to the four threads we spoke about earlier, um, one main thing you know sort of stands out, and I hope this has sort of become um, clearer to you. Um, and it's that, you know, it's not, it's not one thing that is required. It's a series of closely knit um, and interrelated things and that brings us to the topic of you know how we practice or how or if you will how we do strategy um, in our cities and on the continent at large and the process of strat- strategizing really entails a plan of actions that are designed to achieve a long-term or overall aim. Now, if we look at you know the African track record, um, it's not necessarily the most um, encouraging, especially when it comes to strategy. Because a lot of the times it seems like we create vision statements that exist on paper and do not go further. Meanwhile, a plan or a strategy—there's um, a difference between them, of course. Um, but a strategy is about you know a series of prioritized actions um, across you know a time frame um, with the application of uh, resources um, people. People and money, and obviously you need political will um, and leadership. And what um, we find, you know, as we've done a lot of research on cities and even across other issues on the continent, is that you know Africa tends. Um, what Africa tends to do is we tend to have uh, strategic plans which are never really adhered to, um, because we don't apply them across time and we don't apply the right resources to them, and neither do we apply political will to them, um, usually because these decisions are unpopular. And so uh, the failure is that we tend to favor short-term sort of political maneuvers where decisions are very short-termistic that fail to apply all the necessary aspects to turn our strategic plans into effect to the detriment um, of, you know, the generations, the the next generation's problems. And on strategy, strategy, uh, we tend to focus, you know, very much on one dimension. So we'll focus on, say, it's about the money or the resources, you know, as the change agent. But strategy really is the knitting, the knitting together of various sectors over the long term in a prioritized use of plans, um, which make up that long-term strategic focus. Um, and it's also largely about institution building, right? Which is about software, it's about the political will, it's about leadership and the application thereof, um, it's about sequencing and the prioritization. Um, as well as about resources and as we think about you know development um, and why sometimes we have difficulties with development is because sometimes we almost deny what actually is the reality on the ground and its idea that development